try to be brief here, but you bring up like, well, then the Fed's going to be pressured to lower interest rates to zero. My concern is, what if nothing happens? What if that doesn't work? Like, what if it's just not enough anymore? Then people will lose faith in the whole idea the central bank can always save us and can always push stocks higher and always push housing higher. And if people lose that belief, then, then you could really get a downward spiral. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at stboyer.com. Now enjoy this interview. Thanks for joining me for this Rethinking a Dollar interview. Today I'm excited to have returning guest, Mr. Charles Hugh Smith. He's an author as well as a blogger and a commentator of UpToMinds.com. And today he's joining us to share his thoughts on the global economy and a variety of other subject matters. So, Charles Hugh Smith, welcome back to Rethinking a Dollar. Thank you very much, Mike. It's my pleasure to be on the program. Well, I appreciate you taking time uh, to sit down with us. And so before we dive too deep, I'm curious to find out, uh, you know, what are some things that really has Charles Smith concerned at this current time, you know, end of summer, early fall, in this time frame of 2019? Great question, Mike. And I appreciate that. Um, I, I did a post last week and I called up a chart of the um, S&P 500, a chart of silver, and a chart of um, the long bond, right? The 30-year, 20 and 30-year uh, treasury bond. And all these charts are looking really strange. They're looking like very unusual. Like you, we all know and, and are delighted to see silver just explode from 14 to 19 and a half, right? It's fallen off a little bit, that's normal. But then the treasury yield has just collapsed from uh, you know almost three a few months ago to like two, the 30-year treasury. That, those are signs of panic, right, of tremendous unease where people are chasing these um, safe, you know, risk-off assets, right? And then you look at the chart of the S&P uh, 500, and you see this weird period of these wild swings all the way through August. With every other day, there's another gap up, a gap down. It's like, this is not a healthy market. That's what I see. All right. Understandable. Now, so let's talk right about the equities markets. And so it looks like according to uh, this trade war situation and also our president's Twitter uh, situation also fluctuates that those equity markets. And so some days it's up, some days it's down. What's the underlying um, problems that we're experiencing when it comes to equities? Is, is it the trade war? Is it more than that or what? A great question, Mike. And um, certainly we all see the trade wars in, in every headline and every tweet. And let's talk a little bit about that because um, that impacts us in a lot of different ways. We, we, we mostly are told, oh, well, because the price of uh, TVs and smartphones and stuff that come out of China are going to go up and that's a bad thing for American consumers. But you look at the, the way that the Chinese and the Russian governments are buying gold and um, these kinds of things, it, it, it feels like there's uh, – like tectonic changes, you know, like the plates of the global economy are changing. And there's a lot of opinions about the U.S. and China. Some people say, well, China's um, ascendant, it's the new superpower, U.S. is fading, and, 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 and this is the result of the trade war. But I don't think it's quite that simple. I don't think it's, um, you know, one side's winning, one side's losing. It's like in a readjustment, right? Because the Chinese have been very dependent on the dollar. I mean, they're, they're, they peg their currency to the dollar. <laughs> so, you know, uh, they're not going to be free of the dollar till they float their own currency. And then they're also very dependent on the, on the U.S. Uh, consumer for a lot of their manufacturing. 
And so, um, and it's been good for U.S. companies, right? They've, why have corporate profits soared in America? Well, they offshored all the, all the manufacturing to China because the wages there are like, you know, a fifth or a, a, of U.S. wages. So the U.S. companies have reaped a huge gain. And uh, I was just looking at, um, before we started recording, um, I thought we might get into the, the trade deal. And I just was doing some research and um, like how much of the money that, that uh, China uh, gets for making an iPhone, right? And, and um, on the books, the iPhone value is put on the trade books at like $250 each, right? That's the wholesale value coming out of China. But when people look into it, they discover that the Chinese, in terms of the Chinese companies and the, the workers, they only get 10 bucks of that. Mm. Because all the parts are what cost money and they're coming from South Korea and Taiwan and the US and Europe. And so very little of the expensive components are made in China. So the, the Chinese are getting a, a credit, like they're, they're shipping a product worth 250 bucks, but they're only getting to keep 10 bucks of it. So there's a lot of complexities in this trade um, thing. that It's not all as simple as we think is kind of my point. And so this period of readjustment is going to be iffy, right? right. Because everybody's going to, and the Chinese have a right to try to cut the best deal they can. The U.S. has the same right. So it's going to be, you know, push and pull. So I don't see any instant resolution. I'd say it's months away. Months away. And so that's interesting that you put it that way, because as of now, as this thing unravels, uh, a part of that volatility of the markets is that uh, whenever a, a, a meeting, a, the next meeting is scheduled, markets go up. And then when they fall apart, markets go down. And so if, if it's going to take months of uh, some type of situation to be ironed out, in your opinion, that means we're in for a much probably greater ride of volatility, and, and especially when it comes to the equities market? I, I think you just nailed it, Mike. I, I think uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see 10, 20% moves, similar to what we had last year, right? In late 2018, hit a new record, and then the whole thing kind of falls apart in a few months, and then it's saved by the Federal Reserve and so on. But it's, it's interesting too, Mike, because it's tying into the U.S. election, right? There's a lot of people out there saying, hey, the Chinese are playing a long game. They're just going to wait for Donald Trump to lose the election in 2020, and then they'll have a free ride with the Democratic uh, uh, the president-elect, um, whomever that might be, will probably go easier on him, right? <laughs> so, and you go, well, that makes sense. Heck yeah, you know? But um, the Chinese are also, you know, their economy's uh, under pressure, right? I mean, it's a slowing down, not just because of the U.S. trade war, but just globally, right? I mean, they're dependent on the global economy. And they've been pumping a tremendous amount of money into their economy, apparently about $40 trillion in the last decade. That's, that's a lot of dough, right? I mean, the, U, the Federal Reserve pumped in $3 trillion. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. But the Chinese have gone like added a zero to that. Right. <laughs> so that's created a lot of imbalances in their economy that regardless, even if they solved the trade war, they got they got debt, you know, and default issues. Wow. So you mentioned debt. And so you, you hinted at Federal Reserve, you know, twice in, in, in your statement there. So let's talk about the Federal Reserve. And so we have a president that's very um, he's, he's not ashamed to express his opinion on Jerome Powell being behind. And, you know, we should have been cutting rates, never should have raised all that stuff like that. And so this is the month where I believe they're anticipating uh, a cut of some kind. What type of cut should we expect? And then, you know, will there be some type of official easing uh, that begins as far as uh, stimulus or quantitative easing or whatever they might be called this next go round? Yeah, that's a great topic. Um, and it's on everybody's minds, right? Because the, the market, the stock market is so heavily dependent on what central banks are doing, right? 
And so we've had, we have to kind of go back in time in my view, like let's start back at uh, 10 years ago in 2009, the Federal Reserve acts super aggressively, cuts interest rates to zero, starts buying bonds and mortgages in the trillions. And this was at the time, Ben Bernanke said, this is like unprecedented. This is an emergency measure. You know, we got to save the economy and all that stuff. Well, it worked, right? To the degree that we've had 10 years of kind of tepid, you know, not so great expansion, but expansion nonetheless, right? So they've succeeded at that. But now they started back then with uh, interest rates were about five and a half percent, you know? So they had they had five percentage points, what we call 500 basis points, right? If you divide it into a hundreds, you had five interest points to, to drop, right? That, that would make a big difference to auto buyers, home buyers, you know, mortgage rates would fall a lot. Well, now we only got two points, right? The federal, the Fed funds rates like 2.25 or something like that right now. So there's just a lot less leeway, you know, like uh, are, are, are people going to go out and buy a house that's already pretty pricey in a lot of the U.S. if interest rates drop a you know, quarter percent or a half? Probably that's not going to be a deal breaker, a deal maker, right? It's, a, it's just not enough, right? So that's where I don't think they've got the leverage they did back then, you know? And so the other thing we have to remember is, you know, people assume the Federal Reserve actually sets the interest rate. They don't. They set the Fed funds rate between the lending rate between banks. The actual, you know, treasury yield and the mortgage rates and all this kind of stuff, they're set by supply and demand. So if people are, you know, around the world are jumping in buying U.S. treasuries and there's huge demand, then the yields will drop, right? But if their demand dries up, the yields go up no matter what the Fed does. So we, we have to remember the market has a, has a say here. And because the treasury is so liquid, uh, in other words, you can, always, you can always buy and sell hundreds of millions of bucks worth of treasuries. It's a popular market globally, right? So there's, it's not just exposure to U.S. investors and, and um, mutual funds and so on. It's like a global thing. So if the world you know, makes a decision about the U.S. dollar or the U.S. economy or the treasuries, that's going to impact our mortgage rates and, and everything else. Right. So, so borrowing costs, it looks like it will be problematic in the days ahead because of, uh, would you say it's been an overextension of monetary policy intervention? And so in your opinion, it took unprecedented monetary policy to, you know, inf- keep a expansion going a little bit, probably longer than it should have. Now, will the world be dependent upon monetary policy to try to make right their wrong? That's an excellent uh, summary of the dilemma, Mike, because um, as you say, people are looking to the central banks to save, you know, create another five years of expansion or something. And the central banks are saying, hey, wait a minute, don't put, don't put all that weight on us. We've already done our job for 10 years. We don't have um, enough left to, to guarantee that, right? We can do a little bit more, but there's not much more that we can do. And um, so then people are going, well, then these uh, the national governments have to step in and start spending more money, so-called fiscal stimulus, right? And so this is like where these ideas like universal basic income, like giving every adult or every household $1,000 a month, um, you know, presidential candidate Andrew Yang's idea that uh, he's gotten some um, popularized that idea, or a modern monetary theory, which says the government can spend as much money as it wants because it can always print more. 
Um, so you start seeing these ideas coming out because people are realizing maybe the, the era in which central banks could push the economy forward is ending. And that may be why precious metals and, and treasury bonds are becoming extremely popular now as people are feeling uneasy about this whole, this whole idea, you know, that central banks can push the economy forward, even though it's already long in tooth. Now, a part of the, the, the debt situation, um, because there's, I guess, what, a 17 trillion negative yielding uh, bonds. And so it looks like there will be an increase in negative yielding bonds, which will probably force you know, a lot of people into treasuries, as well as the, the strength of the dollar increasing. How will this play out in the, in the months and years ahead? You know, will the dollar be able to continue to strengthen without it really impacting uh, American businesses as well as you know, consumers here? That's, that's a, a terrific topic, uh, Mike, and I think that's really the topic we should be focusing on because um, regardless of President Trump's beliefs on, um, you know, interest rates and the strength of the dollar, it, it's, history tells us that countries with strong currencies are wealthy because they can buy whatever they want from around the world with their money, right? But if your currency is declining in value, you're not getting wealthier. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, everyone says, oh, well, U.S. exports, you know, it will be hurt, you know, and it's all like, well, you know, frankly, the dollar's been strengthening for a while. So U.S. exports are expensive compared to, you know, developing world countries. So I don't think anything's going to change in terms of if the dollar strengthens more. But you also bring up a topic of what's what's going to happen as people start seeking a yield, you know. They, get, they don't want to just um, actually cost them money to own a German bond or a Swiss bond or a Danish bond. They want an actual yield. Well, that then the U.S. Treasuries is still attractive. I mean, hey, 2% is better than, than zero, right? right. So that, all that money is going into the dollar for another reason, which you, know, you, you are an expert, I think, in, in, in the movement of the dollar and the, the, the dynamics around you know, currency trading is when people are looking around at these other nations and other blocks that are, you know, struggling, right? Like Europe's kind of in recession already. Japan's kind of stagnating. China's got problems. Where are you going to put your money where you might gain, you might gain appreciation by owning a currency? Well, the dollar looks looking like a pretty good bet. In other words, if you buy a treasury bond and with, and you're switching from euros or yuan or some other currency into the dollar to own that treasury, if the dollar goes up 5%, You've made 5% plus the 2% yield. You've made 7% in a world. That's, that's, a, that's a great trade if you're you know, having to manage $100 billion or you know, serious money. So I think as you kind of imply, it's very likely that the dollar will strengthen um, in the years ahead if the rest of the world is, is uh, going into recession um, at a faster rate or a deeper recession than the U.S., now, my, my next question is a follow-up to that would be, since you mentioned recession, so there's so many nations already around, uh, around the planet that's already having pretty severe economic uh, woes and their currency sh- you know, were being reflected in that. And so do you think this next slowdown, and, and first question is, are we in an economic slowdown officially, i.e. recession, and then will this officially start from the outside or will it start from within our country when it becomes mainstream news? It's, it's, a, it's another great question, Mike, because, um, you know, typically if we look back in history, we often find there's some kind of external shock, as you imply, like, you know, 1973, it was oil quadrupling, you know, um, 
from, from the situation at that point in time. And then you had oil going up uh, to 140 or whatever it hit in uh, a, a barrel in 2008, which helped, you know, kick uh, that recession off. And then, or then you had the subprime uh, mortgage meltdown in 2008 and nine. So these were like external shocks. And so when you look around the U S economy right now, it's, you don't really see um, anything quite like that. You don't see a Lehman Brothers blowing up. You don't see um, uh, uh, any one sector in tremendous distress. Although I think a lot of people in the Midwest would say the farming sector is in tremendous distress, right? There's a lot of defaults. Commodity prices are just uh, been beaten to um, historic lows. It's, it's very tough in, in the farming states. Um, but beyond that, so maybe we're going to have a different kind of recession. Maybe we're going to have one that's um, just what I call a debt um, exhaustion. You know, it's kind of like, it's not like there's any crisis. It's just that people go, you know, I'm kind of, I've kind of decided I need to start saving money instead of borrowing it, you know? Right. And it's, um, and maybe now's not the time to try to buy a bigger house or get another car, you know, that kind of thing. And so it may be, we just have that kind of stagnation slow down. Because people um, kind of get the feeling, you know, like when we, we're talking about precious metals being in demand and people are starting to feel nervous or hesitant. And so they're going to start saving money and that will cause a, a mild recession as opposed to a crisis kind. Now, as people uh, start to feel the pinch based upon, you know, the economic environment and decide to save more, saving doesn't really go very well in a nation where 70 percent of our production comes from consumption. And so do you think that might actually end up accelerating things where the Fed has to then interact because they're looking for inflation and apparently no matter where they look for, they can't find inflation. So, uh, so how will saving, you know, really, how long will that last? Yeah, that's, that's a very good uh, topic right there. And so, uh, you know, uh, many of you have probably heard about this thing called the Chapwood index where these guys, they, they take price, a basket of prices of consumer goods and they do it within each city and they compare it um, in the past. And, you know, so they're looking at price increases in particular cities, not just across the whole U S now those guys have found price increases of, of like seven, eight, 9% annually. So it's like the feds looking and um, <laughs> they must be looking for like the white rabbit or something, you know, like, <laughs> Because the rest of us know that inflation is at least running at four or five or six percent, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, and then the other thing, of course, is asset prices have, have inflation's gone up in assets, you know, and it's it's just it's horrific to me because uh, I live part time in uh, in California and um, part time in Hawaii, and I look at the the I mean, a house used to cost two hundred thousand; it was actually affordable to two regular you know working people. Now it's like a million bucks or 900,000. I mean, it's like only affordable to doctors and lawyers and, you know, techie millionaires. I mean, this is not a healthy thing, you know? And so uh, when you talk about people feeling nervous, it's, it's partly because assets have gotten so overvalued. They're no longer a good deal. Um, in fact, precious metals, why people are going to precious metals, it's, it's pretty clear they're undervalued, right? Uh, if you look back at, you know, They've gone down for eight years. Stocks have gone up for 10 years. Housing's gone crazy for, you know, five or six years. So um, this uncertainty, saving money is still a good idea because it gives you some, you know, um, some leeway if, if, if something does happen in your household, like your hours are cut 
or, you know, uh, somebody doesn't get a bonus or that kind of thing. And um, so that could happen, right? And, and the Fed, <clears throat> I'll, I'll try to be brief here, but you bring up like, well, then the Fed's going to be pressured to lower interest rates to zero. My concern is, what if nothing happens? What if that doesn't work? Like, what if it's just not enough anymore? Then people will lose faith in the whole idea the central bank can always save us and can always push stocks higher and always push housing higher. And if people lose that belief, then, then you could really get a downward spiral. Yeah, I do agree. Now, if they drop rates to zero, and so they're basically re react, they're going to be reacting and responding to pressures from externally starting to come home to roost a little bit. Now, the, one of the issues would be, you know, cash. If people start to feel a pinch and realize they're being charged now to park their savings and, or investments in general in a financial institution and start withdrawing, can we run into some type of problems where we might have a, a banking situation? Well, that's a very good, uh, that's a very good topic too, Mike. And, and you go, well, what happens? How do banks make money, right? Well, they make money in two ways. One, they rip us off. <laughs> with late fees and monthly fees and fees for this and fees for that. And they make billions of dollars, right? And so uh, off of that, those ripoff fees. And, um, but they also make money by loaning money, right? And so if people kind of cut back on credit card purchases, buying cars, buying houses, well, then the bank's earnings are going to go down. And um, everybody says, oh, the U.S. banking system is healthy. And it's all like, well, you know, I don't know if um, – <laughs> Who do you trust in that, you know? Uh, so, but just the fact that their profits will, will take a hit uh, will, will have a big impact because financials tend to lead the whole stock market. You know, when financial companies are doing well, the whole stock market goes up. When financial companies are, are uh, suffering and their profits are declining, then the whole market tends to follow that. Right. Now, Charles, as we draw towards the end of our, our discussion, I'm curious to get your future projections. And so you do a great job of writing content that, really gets people to thinking. So I know you're, you know, you have some, th you probably thought about this before looking ahead the next decade, we're approaching 2020. And one of my concerns is that for, uh, because of monetary policy, 2020 through 2030 will probably be years that we could have never imagined as we, as things start to unravel when it comes to currencies, um, just the cost of living here in America. Um, what are some things that you probably, uh, some worst case scenarios of things that might unfold? Well, again, I, um, I keep saying those are great topics, but they are because these are important topics to, uh, you know, what we want, of course, is, is you prepare for the worst and hope for the best, right? So we're not talking about, well, we hope this happens. We hope it doesn't happen, but we have to prepare for, for things that could happen, right? And so kind of it, my kind of big picture idea is, look at the system we have, what we call capitalism and what, you know, it's a version of capitalism that's global, it's industrial, it uses a huge amount of energy and it's all based on debt, right? It's all about credit and finance, right? And that's why the global system has, the, the global amount of debt has gone up from 100 trillion like a few years ago to 250 trillion now. And that's, that's like, you know, hey, 10 trillion here, 10 trillion there, pretty soon you're talking real money, right? I mean, this, these are enormous quantities of debt that have to be paid back somehow or not paid back. And when they're not paid back and then they default, then somebody has to eat that loss. And what happens is we, you know, we have to remember every debt is somebody else's asset. So that student loan, well, that's some mutual fund owns that, right? That's their asset. 
That's their income. So when the student defaults on that student loan, the mutual fund has to write that off and they lose the income and the capital. And that's true of mortgages, auto loans, you name it, right? Sovereign bonds. So we have a debt problem globally. And that's probably going to come to a crisis, as you say, within the next five years, no longer than 10. And um, the other thing is capitalism is based on the idea that capital earns a return, right? I mean, you, you know, you save up money in the old ways and then you put your money to work and you get a return. And it's related to risk and return. The higher the risk you're willing to take, the higher the return you might get, right? Well, now with negative, you know, yield bonds, like you're saying, becoming, you know, the standard, it's like, well, wait a minute, capital doesn't earn a return? <laughs> well, the system's broken. In other words, if capital can't earn a return, then what happens is all that capital is pushed into casinos, right? Basically, wild gambles, you know, in the stock market or housing or derivatives. I mean, and so it's like, well, for those of us, what about us just regular individuals? And it's like, I don't know if I want to play in a casino because I might lose, right? I mean, really, the only people who can win in these casinos are insiders, right? Or if you've had 20 years of trading experience and you're really, you know, on top of a market, you might pull it off. But the rest of us, it's like, well, we're, we're more looking for some kind of safety. We don't want to gamble. So again, the precious metals are on the rise after eight years of decline. And why? I think people sense that, that they need to get something that's not going to go to zero, you know, when they wake up the next morning or that they, it won't go down 40% overnight. And if you're playing around with debt or, uh, you know, assets that are based on debt, Hey, when somebody defaults, yeah, your bond does lose 80% of its value right then and there, you know, and there's not a thing you can do about it. So that's kind of like what I see as a debt uh, crisis where the wealth is destroyed either from hyperinflation, like Venezuela has suffered, or from huge defaults that that just crush, um, like, you know, dominoes, you know, everybody starts defaulting and um, there's no way the system can recover from that. Uh, As you mentioned, precious metals, gold, silver sound money. And so as more people begin to catch wind of it, you know, I, I hear that there's more people institution-wise creeping into the space in the form of, you know, digits and uh, ETFs and things of that nature, not necessarily physical. And so I'm not sure if you happen, if you follow the, you know, the, the trading you know, mechanisms or whatnot, uh, but will there come a time where there may not be enough metals for a institutions to get a hold of, or perhaps it trickle down to your small coin dealer shops where it becomes so precious that it's hard to, you know, source some as well as, you know, will people be willing to get rid of it in a worst case scenario like you kind of painted when capitalism comes to an end or halt? Right, right. And, and um, you know, speaking of capitalism, I think what, what's going to happen is it has to reset, right? I mean, lots of times systems reset, you know, like it's, it's just not working, it's broken, it, and so it has to be reset. And so we need to get back to a situation in capitalism, you know, and, as a general system where um you, it's not constantly markets aren't manipulated by central banks and governments where we have some kind of sound money that you can count on that the government can't just print trillions whenever they feel like it and give it to their buddies uh, so that that's the reset will be healthy in other words we're not talking about this doom and gloom lasting for the rest of our lives it's like the reset will be um you know very uncomfortable and disruptive but it's all going to be for the better is what i'm saying in terms of silver and gold shortages you know, we've seen these things where they, um, where there's a panic buying kind of at the end of the cycle where, where suddenly everybody that said they don't own any gold or silver 
And then they start looking at it and then suddenly they decide to buy it. Right. And then that's when you know that it, it gets into this kind of tulip bubble mania and you go, well, how high can the prices go? And well, you know, silver went to 50 without really breathing hard, you know, last time gold, uh, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities, 3000 an ounce, 4,500 an ounce. I mean, you know, it's, it all depends on, as you say, the panic when the herd panics and turns, then, you know, you get these crazy price increases. And so obviously the strategy is get some before the herd turns. <laughs> all right. Very true. Well, Charles U. Smith, it's been great having you join us today. Ken, for those that uh, may not know how to find you or be familiar with your work, can you direct them on how they can be a blessing to you as well as uh, keep in tune with what you have going on? Yeah, please visit me at of2minds.com. There's free chapters of my books and all my archives are free. Sounds good. Well, once again, Charles, look forward to continue to follow your work as always and definitely have you on in the, in the months ahead as things unwind and hopefully get your thoughts and take it at that point. So once again, thanks for joining us here. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate um, the conversation.